Welcome to FF Plus, a new spoiler-free outlet for movie reviews, entertainment recommendations, and discussion. Here you will find a little bit of everything, from what's been entertaining us, to trailer reactions, industry hot topic conversation, and even film award predictions. We hope you'll enjoy this addition to the Feelin' Film lineup and join us each week. Now, on to the show. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of FF+. Plus. I'm Aaron, one of your hosts, and with me for this conversation is my longtime co-host and best friend, Patrick. With <laughs> I love doing that. And we're off the rails already, but we also have <laughs> Coles Davis with us tonight. Hello. That was much better. I like that. Much better, Coles. Much better. Don't judge me. Well, tonight, listeners, we have three films that we are going to offer some spoiler-free thoughts on, and then we are also going to discuss four trailers that came out last week, all of which are pretty big hitters, and we were pretty blown away by them. So we're looking forward to discussing those and hopefully this will be some good information for you and maybe you'll find a film that you want to check out here soon. We'll kick this off with me. I'm going to talk about Dora and the Lost City of Gold. Now, this is funny. There's, there's a story behind this uh, because Dora and the Lost City of Gold is a movie that I had zero interest in. And then when I saw the first trailer, my interest went into the negatives I then sent my children a request to view the movie. I said, we're going to go to this press screening. And they said, absolutely not. And so it became a joke. And I was like, no, I'm going to force you to go because I'm mean. And I'm going to make you go watch this Dora movie because you made me grow up or not grow up, but you made me watch Dora, the TV show while you were growing up. It was going to be a payback moment. Well, then my son decided that he wanted to hate watch it and see how bad it was because the trailer looked so terrible. And my daughter said, absolutely not. You can't make me do it. I'm a teenager. I'm not going. I said, okay. So ends up, my son and I and one of his friends decided we would go see this film, fully expecting to be completely just trashing it all the way through. That's the setup. The plot synopsis for this movie, for those of you who don't know, this follows the uh, titular Dora, the Explorer, uh, and she is reunited with her cousin Diego, and they are searching for her parents while they are trying to solve a mystery uh, to find a lost city of gold in uh, a rainforest in, I believe, South America. Now, Dora the Cartoon is all about learning, and it's all about exploring. It's basically a kiddie version of an Indiana Jones slash Laura Croft slash Nathan Drake character kind of all rolled up into one. This is some of my favorite things, and you would think that if a kid's movie of this nature was going to land for anybody, it would land for me. And I got to tell you, I was shocked, completely shocked and blown away by what I saw at this movie. Going into it, we also had a bit of a controversy. Uh, one of the Hollywood Reporter film critics had put out a review and the basic gist of what his review was talking about was that the film had an underlying sexual tension to it, and it didn't lean into that aspect of the characters enough. It wasn't realistic for them to be teenagers and not have more expression of themselves in a sexual manner. This pretty much pissed me off. I was very upset about that as a father, and I was curious to see 
what was going to be in this movie. Was Dora going to be showing cleavage? Was there going to be some sort of kind of close but not close sexual encounters? Guys, there's nothing in this movie that would lead a rational human being to believe that these characters were sexualized in the slightest. And to think that they needed to be is pretty disturbing when you watch how they're depicted. The worst thing that happens in this movie is two characters share a very awkward kiss. It's adorable. It's a romance. You know, you're going to have two characters that end up liking each other. Don't worry. It's not the cousins. They're not kissing cousins. So that's not a problem. But all in all, this was just a ton of fun. The whole theater seemed to enjoy it. And yeah, there were a lot of kids there. But even the critics section, we were laughing and we were smiling and just really having a blast. Dora makes it very clear in this film several times the difference between an explorer and a treasure hunter. And I thought that was really cool aspect of it. Kind of wants to separate itself from what we think of as treasure hunting explorers and designate, you know, that there are a group of explorers that truly explore just for the knowledge and just to document history. And that's what Dora's parents are doing. That's what Dora is looking to do. She is dealing with coming out of the jungle and having to go live with Diego, her cousin, in the high school for the first time. So that's a lot of fun. Patrick, I thought of you because it essentially serves as like a mini snapshot of a coming of age story at times. Mm-hmm. They meet up with a couple of, you know, stereotypical type friends and end up on this adventure in the rainforest. You know, they're being chased by villains. It's nothing surprising with the narrative, but the way that they implement some of the more fantastical parts of the cartoon, uh, if you're familiar with it, you'll know that there is a talking map and a backpack. And then there is a character called Boots that is a talking monkey. And there's a character called Swiper that is a talking fox who tries to steal everything. The way that these things were woven into this live action film, they were done with incredible skill and incredible cleverness. And they could have sunk this movie, guys. They really could have. But they didn't. I think part of it is when you get Benicio Del Toro to voice Swiper the Fox and say Swiper no swiping over and over. That helps quite a bit. Um, there are some implementation sequences with the map and the backpack that I truly believe were just brilliant and some of the most memorable things that I will see in a theater all year. I was not expecting them in this movie. It was a total surprise. The jungle puzzles are in this movie. They have to solve them at times, and they're a lot of fun. I liked seeing the puzzles. I actually liked the puzzles in this movie more than in the recent Tomb Raider film with Alicia Vikander. And you know I love that movie, but I went back and rewatched it, and I thought this was better as far as the explorer aspect of a movie goes. So I loved it. My son loved it. We were in shock coming out of it. Um, fellow critics that I talked to as we left, we were all just like, I don't know what to say. This was awesome. So families, it is a wholesome refreshing and really entertaining explorer movie and i love these and i'm so grateful that we got this it reminds me of like spy kids shark boy and lava girl and i like those movies so if you're into that if your kids are into that you really need to take them to see this let's make dora and the lost city of gold successful financially so that we'll get more films like this like goosebumps Um, these are the good ones these are modern day kid movies that are great for families to go see so i highly recommend it so is this this year's My Little Pony for you? I knew you were going to bring that up. 
Yes, I knew it. of course I would. I knew somebody was going to bring that up. I you know, not. I guess so. I guess so. I'm at four stars, and I was at four stars for My Little Pony. I was shocked that I loved that as much as I did, thought I'd go into it, hate watching it, and came out firing up the Netflix cartoon and falling in love with different ponies. So not like romantic love, folks, but like, you know, like fandom. Awkward. Fandom love. Fandom love. <laughs> no kissing cousins here. <laughs> or kissing ponies. <laughs> kissing pony cousins. <laughs> So how was um Boots? Um, I was actually like wonder. I was actually curious about how Boots is going to be portrayed in this live action film, especially with um, is Danny Trejo doing the voice for it? Right. I can't answer that question because this is a spoiler free podcast, and I would love for everyone to go see this movie and enjoy this movie, and for all of its unique choices is all I'm going to tell you. I think Boots was great. And I thought Boots was going to be terrible when I saw the CGI of Boots in the trailers, but it doesn't come out bad at all. Like, he integrates just fine. It's not the greatest CGI in the world. Don't get me wrong. We're not working on Disney's budget here, but it yeah. is it is serviceable. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> you you got a little girl to take the movie, so you, you got to take her. Yeah, but the thing is, is that, like, I'm worried because, like, she's not really a big fan of the cartoon, but I'm still thinking that, like, these films like this, she loves them when she actually goes and sees them, so I'm going to give it a shot. <laughs> Good, I hope so. And Patrick, you have a son, so similar. Okay, well, he's not okay. He's not he's, okay? No, he is okay. <laughs> but right now, he's into other things, and I don't know that I can pull him into Dora just yet. Well... Fine. I'll buy it, and he can watch it at home from our Voodoo account later. Perfect. All right, gents. Well, we're going to roll into the second review we have uh, for tonight. And this film, it's actually from last year. It's a documentary that came out. It's currently streaming on HBO, so you can check it out there. I'm not sure how I missed this one. It seemed like something right up my alley. Um, Patrick, this was a film called, it's called The Cold Blue. And it is a tri- about a tribute to one of the world's great filmmakers, uh, William Wyler, director of Roman Holiday, Ben-Hur, and others. And it's also a tribute to the men of the 8th Air Force who flew mission after suicidal mission in the Second World War. They flew B-17 bombers, essentially what it is. It's a history of that. And one of your friends, I believe, recommended this, Patrick, so I'm going to let you take it away and get us kicked off. Yeah, um, I, a coworker of mine named Chris, who he and I are the, we, all of our conversations center around movies, he'll pop into my office and say, what'd you see this weekend? We'll get a debrief. He's usually the guy that is, uh, is my go-to when it comes to any kind of movie talk that isn't on the podcast. So that's really good. But we were talking about Apollo 11 and about the found footage and how cool it was. And he said, well, have you seen this movie called The Cold Blue? And I said, no, I haven't. What's it about? And he said, it's about the 8th Air Force, the Flying Fortress. But the footage was actually shot for a documentary that was directed by, as you mentioned, William Wyler, called The Memphis Bell. You can actually find the documentary on YouTube. And so you'll recognize a lot of the footage from that documentary in this one. This this documentary repurposed that to focus on a general aspect of the 8th Air Force as a whole. And the the whole thing centers around the footage itself with voiceover interviews with surviving members of the 8th Air Force B-17 crews. None of the members of the Memphis Bell are alive, and so a lot of the voices that you hear come from 
current surviving members of that time period. But the documentary, while not the greatest, there are some parts of it that I think could have been done better, really helps understand, helps the audience understand what it was like to be a part of this group, to be a part of the 8th Air Force and fly these B-17s. The documentary is sectioned off in talking about the planes themselves, how just beautifully crafted they were, and I, I can attest to that they're absolutely just gorgeous. Um, how they were named, the crews themselves, and how they bonded and became essentially a family because they were flying mission after mission after mission to complete eventually a 25-mission campaign. This didn't happen a lot. The Memphis Bell was famous for that. They became one of the first, if not the first, crew to fly 25 missions and complete their tour of duty. But everything you see in this documentary really speaks to understanding what it was like to be a part of that, to be encamped in this part of Britain where most of the the planes were. I think there was a stat that said at the beginning of World War II, there were only like several hundred of these B-17s. And by 1945, there were close to like 12,000. Like these things were mass produced. And you can imagine that because of what they had to do, their primary focus being to go on these bomb runs and bomb France and bomb Germany. These planes weren't coming back and the crews weren't coming back with them. And so the footage is really, really incredible because you get to see a bird's eye view of what it's like to be inside the fuselage of a B-17 from the gunner's point of view, the left and right from the top turret, because the director, along with two of his cinematographers, one who was actually all of which were on some of these planes, got a chance to get this footage. One of them actually got shot down with the plane that, that he was on. So this is not something that was just like, hey, this would be fun. Let's get up there and shoot some footage. Now, these guys were really all about finding and getting as much as they could, risking their lives for this kind of footage. Fortunately, William Wyler survived and he was able to put together this documentary. The footage was then archived in, I think, the National Archives. And recently, for this documentary, it was put together, restored, and has now made up this uh, this feature. Yeah, the documentary immediately reminded me of They Shall Not Grow Old, also from last year, where Peter Jackson took a bunch of footage from the British uh, Archive Museums and restored it even more so into just gorgeous, like almost 4K-like color, it felt like, and used the same technique where he superimposed these real-life interviews over this documentary footage. It wasn't necessarily the actual people in the footage. In fact, it rarely was, but it was someone talking about a situation that was similar to what we were seeing. It's a really great technique. I think it helps when you're playing archived interviews because they feel a lot more natural and realistic. It's not somebody talking about what it might have been like in the past. It's somebody talking about what it was like in the moment. And so that changes things. I really enjoyed that. I just loved learning about it, frankly. I think documentaries are great for this when you don't know anything about the subject and you get to discover something. I mean, I knew B-17s existed. I've only actually been around B-17s in miniature form because I used to play with them in board games, uh, something called Axes and Allies. And so I used to use them to move them around the map all the time. But that was the most I've ever actually 
seen a V17, you know, so getting to learn about them was really cool. And some of the stuff was incredible. Some of the facts, like they flew so high that they were at negative zero temperature and they would pass out. They would have frostbite in a matter of seconds if they weren't careful. Only the pilot had any heat because there was a little bit of heat coming off of the engine that was close to where he was enough to keep his feet and hands warm so he could fly. But like, there's a story in there about this gunner whose gun jammed, so he had to fix it and he took his gloves off thinking he was going to fix his gun and like immediately had frostbite and was out of commission for a month. So it was a harrowing time to be in the military and it's cool to see it from the air where we always see it from the ground. And just the fact that, like you said, these documentarians were embedded in the crap, as we like to call it, with the troops in this situation, with the pilots and the flyers. So, you know, you you mentioned it. They were just as much in danger of getting shot down by the Germans as the people in the planes. And so, you know, they were there. So it was incredible to see that and think about the fact that this documentary footage is not faint. Like when there are bullets popping outside that they're filming and catching on camera that's their actual lives in danger mm-hmm. and they're spending it capturing it on film while they're being I, I don't know it just that puts me in a crazy place when i'm watching it but I, I enjoyed it man i did too and it reinvigorated my love for the memphis bell movie that released back in i think the late 80s early 90s i don't remember exactly but Watching it, I ended up rewatching The Memphis Bell, which was a treat. And uh, you and I have talked and we're putting it on the schedule tentatively. But watching it, it made me realize that I'd like to think a lot of this footage inspired a lot of the scenes that you see in Memphis Bell. So a lot of the focal points about what the crew had for breakfast. There's an interesting fact that typically you get powdered eggs. Uh, for breakfast before your briefing. If you got real eggs, it usually meant that you were going to go on a mission that had a really low survival rate, sometimes mostly in Germany. Like France was the runs you wanted to go on because they were easy. Germany was one that you didn't. All this stuff is reiterated through the narrative of Memphis Bell. The, the formations in flight, the way in which the crews take off individually in their planes and how they line up the way they do. All of that is replicated in the Memphis Bell. And so in a lot of ways, it gave me a lot of respect for the movie because it didn't feel like it was an exaggeration. All these things felt like they were trying to be historically accurate in terms of how they looked, how people responded, the way in which anxiety kind of built up over the course of the night before a mission. And it gave me a lot more respect for the movie and uh, it made me just fall in love with it all over again. Well, good deal. I'm looking forward to revisiting that one, too, with this new knowledge once we cover it later in the year, hopefully around Veterans Day, because that's the perfect time, I think, to do so. All right, guys, well, let's get to our third review. And this one is close to my heart because we're talking about the best superhero ever to be created. That's right. Not the one on Kalesa's shirt right now. Not the one that Patrick thinks is the best, but the one and only Batman, Bruce Wayne. So the newest DC animated film is out, and it is called Batman Hush. It is available to rent 
and buy on video on demand right now. And the disc is available at some point this week. Probably came out on Tuesday. I don't remember exact date, but it is out now when you're listening to this. You should be able to find it. Plot synopsis. If you're not familiar with Batman Hush, you should be because this is one of the best comic book storylines ever. At least one of the best Batman storylines ever. And I think it's one of the best that I've ever read of any character. Plot synopsis is this. An adaption, adaptation of this storyline was originally written by Jeff Loeb and Jim Lee. A mysterious villain uses Catwoman, Riddler, Ra's al Ghul, and several other of Batman's rogues gallery and his allies in a game to create chaos in Batman's life. And by the mysterious villain, we are referring to his name is Hush. That is what he goes by. So, Coles, I want to start with you, because from what I remember you saying, you did not have any familiarity with the comic. Is that correct? Yes, I didn't. Okay, so what did you think about this? Well, it was interesting that I kind of went in without any of the comics knowledge because I kind of just wanted to get a feel for the film without, like, worrying about, like, hey, does this compare to this one? Like, why are these characters missing from this? Or, like, why did they take the story this to this area instead of this way that they wrote it in the source material? So I kind of just wanted to come in from that angle because... I had watched The Killing Joke when it first came out, and I really didn't like the screen adaption of that. The graphic novel was so much way ahead times better than that. So I had my reservations, but I went in on a whim because I know that you were a big fan of it. So and usually you're mostly always right about, you know, anything that's good. So I came in with that and I have to say I enjoyed it to the max. It was um, it was great. It was great. The animation was beautiful. The action was great. I love the way that they incorporated all of the characters, the enemies of Batman, you know, and, you know, Superman, Catwoman, Poison Ivy, and especially Harley Quinn. She was actually uh, one of my favorite parts of this film. The voice act, the voice actor who played her did a really, really great job. And I'm kind of hoping that they can take that model and kind of use it into the Suicide Squad film that's coming out in a couple of years from now, because that was just a great turn that um, Harley Quinn did. And also, I like that they focused on the aspect of Batman and Catwoman's relationship. They went really in-depth on that. They explored, you know, Batman, you know, kind of like, you know, letting down his guard a little bit. And just, like, also showing Catwoman being in a more, like, softer spot than what she usually is, than what you see in the film. So, that was great. Um I love the twist that they went along with the story. You know, I, I did go back and I re- reread the source material and everything, and I thought they did a pretty good job of carrying the story over. You know, there were a lot of alterations and changes, but it didn't affect the mood or the tone of the film. It was still very funny, still very exciting, still kept my attention throughout the whole runtime. And I think now this is actually making me want to go back and watch a lot of these DC animated films. Um, I don't have too much experience with them. I've only seen a couple or three of them. But if they're going to keep being good like this, then I might need to go and just do like a marathon of these because I was highly impressed. We both highly recommend that because we love them and they are almost always very enjoyable and sometimes really incredible. There's one called The Flashpoint Paradox that is... Uh, and it covers a lot of characters, but specifically the one on the shirt you're wearing for the Flash right now, obviously. Um, highly recommend that one, but there are some great ones out there. And I've got a whole ranked list on Letterboxd you can check out if you want to pull from that. Um, we've been kept keeping up with them, and now we're just watching them all. So um, I, we have some in our Voodoo account, too, which you have access to. So feel free to yes. dive in and watch some of those. I'm glad you like this. Patrick, 
you do have familiarity with the source material. Is that right? Yeah, Jeff Loeb is probably one of my favorite writers uh, across both the the big two, DC and Marvel. I'll pretty much read anything he writes. And Jim Lee, of course, did the art for the original graphic, or excuse me, the original run. I call it a graphic novel, but it's not that. Uh, along with Scott Williams being a part of that team. I don't remember the... I remember the overall plot, but I didn't, didn't remember the, uh, the intricacies of it. So going into it, I was sort of blind to the, the story's details, which was good because I didn't necessarily want to compare it to or see what kind of deviations were made. Although that's always an interesting thing when you can, when you can do that, you can see what kind of creative liberties were taken with the source material. We did that a little bit with the, uh, Batman TMNT original movie that that came out uh, a couple of months ago it's a fantastic story i love the fact that the rogues gallery is used the way they are i also am a big fan of the blue gray suited batman and that makes a significant appearance in this as well but i will say this uh before the podcast i was thumbing through the trade that i have and one thing i really appreciate is the animation itself really mirrors a lot of the Jim Lee style. The way in which the characters are drawn, the way in which they move. Obviously in a in a comic book you're not seeing the movement, but you're seeing stills of it. I felt like that was replicated really well. There's a always going to be a grittiness when it comes to the world of Batman with Gotham City, lots of shadows, lots of darkness. But there were moments when the color made a huge impact, particularly when we got the scenes with uh, with Poison Ivy and the way in which she uses some of her some of her techniques. The green seemed to pop out right off of the screen for me, and it allowed her to kind of shine a little bit in the moment. So overall, I think the technical side of the movie was really what I enjoyed the most. The story's great. Um, I, I like other stories more than this, but you know, as you mentioned, we're talking about a high level of of praise here so it's if it deviates it's deviating to the above average (laughs) compared to the other ones that i've seen that are just really phenomenal but overall it's a it's a win for dc animation once again i with the exception of i think the killing joke i don't think there's been one dc animated movie that has not disappointed me And and that speaks for characters that i'm not as familiar with I wish, obviously, Superman had more solo work, but, you know, we get what we get. So any chance I get to see a mainline character, even a lower tier character, have their own movie, if it's a DC property, I know I'm going to get something really good, and and this was uh, no exception. Well, I absolutely loved it. I thought it was a fantastic adaptation of the source material. It didn't bother me at all that they made the change that they did. There was a, a big deviation from the way that the source material handles the villain Hush, but it worked for me, and I think that it will work for most audiences as well. Um, Like you said, Kales, going back and reading it, it keeps the intent of the story the same. So the general progression of what this is about is no different. And this is a Batman and Catwoman story. This is a Bruce and Selina story. That is the focus of what is going on here. Hush is the you know, antagonist that is driving 
the plot forward, but it is all about how those two characters are handling this and their relationship and how it is budding in the middle of all of this. And that's what I love the most about it because I love those two characters and I love that relationship. And this is one of the best instances of seeing it depicted that we've gotten in the comics. It's so much fun and so curious to watch them. I mean, we have Selena who is wrestling with this idea of giving up crime and at least trying to come to a middle ground. And you have Bruce who is trying to talk himself into doing the same thing when we know he can't. Right. And we know that it's just building to a point where they're ultimately going to have to make, he's going to have to make a choice. And it's going to be whether he can do that or not, because that's how these characters work. And how's that going to play out? And so it's, I think, really interesting to take that journey with them. And it's so great anytime the rogues gallery is used with more than one, when you get to kind of get these little snippets of each character being displayed and their powers and what their relationship with Batman is like. And I enjoyed that a lot. The writing is just great. I think that they did a phenomenal job of keeping the humor. I don't remember which one of you mentioned that, but that stuck out to me big time. The Harley joke where she says, bats with cats, ugh, I just threw up in my mouth a little, is is so Harley, the way that that comes out. Nightwing is hilarious in this. Dick is just constantly making jokes about Batman and Catwoman's relationship. I thought that was great. And one of the other highlights for me is just that there's so much Bruce Wayne stuff that happens in this film. It's not all Batman. There's a lot of time that he's Bruce, and he's dealing with this as well. And I enjoy seeing that side of the character and not just Batman fighting people, right? Um, he is up against a villain here that has the upper hand on him. This villain knows his secret identity and is able to control the playing field. And unlike normal occasions, Bruce doesn't know anything about the villain. So he's in the dark and he's kind of the underdog in a way, and so it presents a really unique scenario for Batman to deal with, and I absolutely loved it. It was just one of my favorite DC animated films yet, um, one of my favorite Batman DC animated films yet. I watched it twice in a row, literally stopped it, turned it on the second time, and watched it with the commentary, and got a lot of great information out of that, just listening to the... Who was it on the commentary? I'm trying to remember who all was on it, but uh, producers... Uh, the director, I think, were on there, but I think it was really helpful to get to hear them talk about why they made the changes they made. And they talked a lot about scenes that were animated and created for the film that didn't get into the film and why that was, why they trimmed certain things in order to keep the pacing the way it was. One of the better commentaries I've listened to in a while. So this 4K disc is incredible it looks amazing and i can actually compare it because i watched it in 4k the first time and then the second time when the commentary i had to watch it in blu-ray and janky old terrible just gross blu-ray but it looks distinctly different guys it is much more crisp and like on point in the 4k so i highly recommend the 4k disc of this film and the special features were really fun. I don't think I've ever dug into the special features on a DC animated disc. I don't know if they all have them. There was a 15-minute short film covering a little-known character named Sergeant Rock, who 
was a World War II American sergeant that led this ragtag infantry unit. They called him Easy Company, and he took them throughout Europe fighting the Nazis. Um, he is voiced by Carl Urban, and it was really great to hear him doing another superhero. And he's, his ragtag crew is what to me seemed like universal monsters. He has like a werewolf with him, a vampire and a Frankenstein, and they're just running through Europe killing Nazis. There's not really much story to it, but the fighting is brutal. It's a lot of fun. It was cool just kind of getting to see this 15 minute look at a character that I didn't know existed. There's a, another short feature called Batman Love in Time of War. And it is all about Batman and Catwoman's relationship history throughout the comics. Um, particularly focused on Catwoman as a character and how she has evolved over time, what she has presented in terms of providing interesting things for Batman to have to deal with. I loved this little featurette. It was great. It has an episode of Batman the Animated Series called Catwalk that is very fitting to pair with Hush because it's all about Catwoman and her considering coming to the clean side of things and no longer being a criminal. And it made me realize I am a complete failure for not actually having watched all of Batman, the animated series and Batman beyond completely all the way through. I was telling Patrick this offline, how I've seen many episodes, but I've never, I've never just watched the entire series through. And I think I'm going to have to do that at some point. If I'm going to call myself this big Batman fan that I am, I feel like, that's one of those like check marks that you've, you've got to have. So I'll get around to that. This was, I thought the animated series held up great watching this episode. So yeah, I think that the special features are great, especially with that commentary on there. It was just really fun to have all of that extra stuff. And I dug into it because I loved this adaptation. Well, let's jump into the final segment here then where we are going to do a little bit of. Can I just say one thing before we actually start talking about these trailers? Of the ones that we're going to be talking about, I think the one that feels the least bonkers is the one that takes place during World War One. which if that says something about the rest of these, we're in for a pretty great ride the rest of the year with these movies coming out. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That is very true. And these are just four. I mean, there's plenty more. This is not, we're not talking about Knives Out. And that's one of the more crazy films coming out later this year, we think. But the four we're going to discuss are the World War I, one that Patrick is referring to, 1917, The Irishman, Aquina and Slim, and The Lighthouse. And we're going to start with 1917, and we're not going to go too deep into these guys. I just kind of want to get your initial reactions. When did you first watch the trailer? Did you know this was coming? What do you think about it? Are you hyped for it? Coles, what do you think about 1917? We'll start with you. Well, actually, my girlfriend surprisingly put me on to the 1917 trailer, and then I was interested, and I watched it. Kind of gave me some feels of Dunkirk, but I did like, you know, we're having it center around a mission. And also that Roger Deakins is doing the cinematography. That's what reeled me in right there, because there's one beautiful running long take shot that's in the trailer that is massively gorgeous, and it has me already hyped for the whole film. And I like that we're doing um, more films in World War One. We always get films about World War Two or the Civil War, or Vietnam. Nice to have a film about World War One, you know, because that's a very interesting war as well. Yeah, I caught it during the uh, the Hobbs and Shaw uh, performance. <laughs> the uh, when I when I went to go see Hobbs and Shaw, and Kalash, you make a great point. We don't see a lot of movies, uh, war movies that take place during World War One. I. I mean, that's a big deal. 
you know, we wouldn't have had World War II had not World War One not happened. It would have been World War whatever. But no, I, I think you're right. It does feel a little bit like Dunkirk. I think, Aaron, you said it's Dunkirk with more talking. I think it's what you initially said when you saw it. That's exactly and, what I said. But it feels a little bit like Saving Private Ryan because there's a personal attachment that I think we're going to get with a mission, not only to complete the mission itself, but also to save a life. So we're getting a little bit of that Band of Brothers, Saving Private Ryan feel. And uh, yeah, I'm pretty excited about it. Me too. I think so. Sam Mendez is directing this, director of Skyfall, I believe, in the Bond mm-hmm. series. He can make some movies, and Roger Deakins can make anything look incredible. So I'm not worried about that. I think that the film is going to sound amazing. I think we all agree that it looks like Dunkirk, like you said, Dunkirk with more talking to it, which I'm here for that. I didn't know that this even existed, which is rare, 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 rare that I don't know a film is in production. But this trailer caught me completely off guard. And it, lo and behold, it's coming this Christmas season, I think, for a qualifying awards run, for screenings, for critics. And then it's going to drop, I think, early January, which is a good time because it can dominate at that point. Um, I'm pumped to see it. I love me a good war film. I'm curious if you guys think we might be in. Do you think we could be in for something that is a surprise? And I'm asking because when I rewatched the trailer today, I paid particular attention to the dialogue and the way that it's being described, the mission, talks consistently about if you don't do this, 1,600 people will die, including your brother. Do you think there could be some sort of untold time travel element to this, some alternate fantasy type of thing in play? Or do you think this is a straight war film with this is your mission, it truly is that to the point, you need to get here and... Tell them not to do this thing or else they're going to get attacked. Or do you think that they know that they're going to get wiped out because they may know how history goes and this is going to end up being some sort of alternate history type thing? Well, I do find your time traveling very fascinating because the trailer does make an emphasis on time. You hear a lot about, hey, like this needs to be done right here and there. Like it did creep into my mind about the time travel. That would be that would be freaking awesome. But for me. I think this is going to be just a, a entertaining, just straight war film. But if you are right about the time travel, I will, I will bet you, I will pay you fifty dollars if you're right about the time travel. I oh, I'll take that. I just hope I, you enjoy it. If it is, <laughs> Aaron, I think you're reaching because Benedict Cumberbatch is in this, and you're thinking Doctor Strange is going to make an appearance. But as much as I think it could happen, I know it won't. I think that this is a movie that's going to be personal. I think based on the filmography of the director we have skyfall road to perdition american beauty these are not these are not sci-fi movies now it's not out of the question but i feel like with that kind of track record 1917 is going to be a very compelling war movie that has a personal touch to it if it has time travel then you know christopher nolan's going to probably attach himself as an ep and we don't know that yet all right fine right on my parade well maybe there will be time travel in the second movie we're going to talk about so this one is going to be Martin Scorsese's next epic. And it's going to be coming out from Netflix. This is Netflix's next attempt at running the Oscars game. And it's The Irishman, which is starring Martin Scorsese's muses, Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci. Who else is in this? Al Pacino. That's the other one. I knew there was somebody <laughs> else big. All the Italians. What do you get? What do you think of it, Patrick? 
Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, it looks like typical Scorsese. You know, when you take a, here's something that happened in real life and I'm going to amp it up to 11. I mean, he did it with JFK. He's going to do it with this one. If anything comes out of this, it's going to be a very entertaining interpretation of the events that took place around this guy's life. And I think with a cast like Pacino, Pesci, and De Niro, you're going to have a lot of swearing, and you're also going to have a lot of great dialogue between those three. I'm excited to see Joe Pesci in a role. I haven't seen him in much lately, but I always love seeing him on screen. So seeing what happens with those three and Scorsese actually uh, putting this together is going to be pretty pretty bonkers. <laughs> what do you think about this, Coles? Is this your kind of film? Oh, yes. Um, I'm a big fan of Scorsese mob films. Um, Goodfellas, I got that Goodfellas vibe, especially from the way that the trailer was moving. You could feel the energy. You could feel the banter. You could feel that there's already going to be some great banter scenes between De Niro, Pesci, Pacino. Um, you can, and I also like that they're also talking about Jimmy Hoffa. Jimmy Hoffa is a mobster who I have heard about a lot over the years. Of course, the famous legend about him being buried under a giant stadium still rings on to this day. But I, I'm, I'm glad that we're finally going to get some historical significance onto who he was. As far as the Teamsters and all of the um, illicit dealings that he was into, he's a very fascinating character. Now, for me, the de-aging, it kind of looked a little bit too obvious in the trailer. Like, when you see the little the revealing shot of De Niro talking on the phone, he looked a little bit too clean for my taste, but... Um, you can tell that they put a lot of work into the aging and the guys really do look younger, just looks a little bit too obvious, but I'm excited. I mean, I've been waiting for this for years and Scorsese is finally going to deliver it onto Netflix and to the big screen. So I'm excited. Yeah, I'm excited to see this on the big screen. I am hoping that it is better received than his last film silence, because I thought Scorsese was a bigger draw. And I remember going on opening weekend to see silence and being the only person in my theater. It was very depressing. Now, maybe that's also partially because of the material. It's a vastly different movie. We're talking like a three hour, quiet, slow film about religion <laughs> versus the, the, you know, De Niro and Al Pacino doing mob stuff, which is a bigger draw in this day and age. So I love it. I thought it looked great. I'm definitely excited to see it. Not necessarily one of my most anticipated films of the year. I think it's one of those that I will definitely like, though. And it's a Scorsese shot at going for that big prestige Oscar bait type mob movie that he's made in the past. And we know he can succeed. And I'm just intrigued to see if he has another one in him that is unique enough. I think that's my big question for this one. Will it be able to separate itself enough somehow from all the other mob movies to make it special? Well, the third trailer that we're going to discuss is Queen and Slim. This is a smaller indie level type film that's coming out this fall starring Daniel Kaluuya and Lena Waithe as essentially, as the trailer puts it, eventually becoming a Black Bonnie and Clyde. Now, how they get to that point is vastly different. I actually dislike that reference immensely because it assumes that Bonnie and Clyde were treated unfairly and somehow forced into their life of crime when they were not. They chose what they were doing, and that is not the situation that we see these two characters in. Uh, Coles, did you notice what's coming out? Was this on your radar? 
Yes, it was on my radar. I had seen it pop up on a couple of my um, friends' um, pages. So I was very interested in anything with Daniel Kaluuya and Lena Waif being behind it. Of course, I'm going to be interested in that. So I saw the trailer. And yes, I get what you mean with the whole Bonnie and Clyde. I didn't like that. I didn't like that reference either because they're acting like that these people are just willing to go out and just commit crimes. And that's why they're on the run. But in actuality, from the trailer, it looks like they got stuck in an unfortunate situation. And Daniel Kaluuya ends up having to save his girl from being the victim of police violence and then it starts off this crazy journey that we're going to see but i'm very excited for it It looks great cinematography looks awesome the cast is stacked and the director um also fun fact she directed um a couple she directed seven episodes of hbo's insecure which is also a great phenomenal show so i'm i'm excited man i'm pumped patrick what about you so this also came out prior to the hobbs and shaw feature and i didn't know what to think of it I remember thinking similarly to what my buddy Anthony was thinking. Uh, he said, well, that wasn't what I expected. And I said the same thing. I went, the end of the trailer made me expect something completely different than what I got at the beginning. And I'm trying to figure out personally, is this a road movie? I mean, I'm not really sure. I'm almost, I'm really not sure what to make of the trailer. Like, I feel like it's a, it's adventure. It's a road movie. It's, they're not trying to escape. They're just trying to stay ahead of the, 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 the police, but to, to what end? So it didn't give me a lot to kind of get amped up about. So what I'm probably going to do is just wait for the reviews to come in. Coles, when you go see it, Aaron, when you go see it, I'll get those honest reviews and, and probably make a choice based off of that. I just, I don't feel like I got enough from that. The characters themselves look pretty phenomenal. I, I love the little bit of chemistry that, that we saw on screen. I think those, those two characters are going to be pretty phenomenal, but just the overall narrative, I don't really know what to expect from it yet. So it hasn't gotten me intrigued just yet. Well, it definitely has my attention. I knew it existed. Um, didn't know what it was about really. I just knew that it was going to be about some sort of police injustice and involve Daniel Kaluuya and Lena Waithe. Now, Lena Waithe was not like a big draw for me when I heard her name. I was like, wow, really? H from Ready Player One? Because that's pretty much all that I know her from. I haven't seen The Shy um, or Dear White People. I know she's a producer on that. Um, she's been in quite a lot of TV. And I just didn't know that this was the kind of actress she could be. <laughs> I All I know of her is that kind of silly comedic role. And this is so far removed from that character of H in Ready Player One that we saw that, I mean, I didn't even recognize her, frankly. Um, I was blown away by this trailer. I thought it looked phenomenal. I loved the setup. I loved the idea that is driving them off on the run. And the fact that it is modernized, you know, from the looks of it, it seems like he's talking about them being on a Tinder date. And they are thrown into this situation together and must kind of learn to survive together. They're not two people who were married or have this long relationship and then got into this trouble. This was one night, one moment, and now these two people are bonded forever together, and they're going to have to deal with that. And I think that that presents a fascinating drama in and of itself. Um, I know that this is going to be a big commentary on racial injustice in the world today, and I hope that they – you know. Largely, it's going to succeed or not succeed for me based on how I feel that's handled. Uh, but I'm super pumped to see it. And at this point, 
Daniel Kaluuya is like must see TV for me, no matter what. He is one of the actors that I am the most excited to see put out a new project because everything he does, I feel like he steals the spotlight in as long as it's not Black Panther. Just keep him out of Marvel movies because that was that was not good. But other than that, I've dug him in absolutely everything. And so I personally am pumped for Queen Slim. And I guess I will take Coles to see that and then we will report back. Well, the last trailer we're going to discuss is The Lighthouse. And this is the newest film from horror director Robert Eggers, known for, I believe, his debut movie, The Witch, a few years ago. This one also seems to be taking a lot of his style and transposing that into this new, what I saw on the trailer listed as a dark and stormy yarn. I thought that was fantastic wording. This is about Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson stuck on a lighthouse together. They're talking in this old English sailor language that I could listen to all day long. I I just, the dialogue between the two was music to my ears. I thought it was amazing. And it's got some mystery to it. It's got that dark, scary, horror-y vibe, but we don't know what's going on. Maybe some tentacles I saw in this trailer. I could, I'm not going to be shocked if Cthulhu or something makes an appearance somewhere, but I loved The Witch and the way that Eggers made that film. And so this one looks amazing in its black and white, and it's got incredible actors and that awesome dialogue that I can actually understand and don't need subtitles. I'm super duper excited to see this one. Patrick, I'm going to start with you because horror is not your vibe, and this is horror, but I don't think the trailer necessarily sells it as that totally. So what did you think of this? experimental is what i was sold on this feels very much like hey let's put these guys together and let's come up with some great dialogue and see what happens i'm not opposed to experimental films i went to a mid arkansas film festival screening of several experimental films and a lot of them were very entertaining although they almost didn't make sense i think this will make a lot of sense the thing about this is that there's just like queen and slim there's not a lot of information for me to go on But it works to the advantage here because we're almost just getting cuts of moments in the movie. And all we know is that these two guys are stuck in a lighthouse. And when you throw black and white on top of that, now you've got something that you're just kind of thinking, this is pretty intriguing. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm going to hold on to my armchairs because we could get something really crazy or it could just be pretty much a slow burn. I think from the director, based on that history that we have with him, with The Witch, we're not going to get that. I think it's going to err on the side of more suspense, but I think it's going to be a weird kind of approach to it. And it wouldn't surprise me if I walked out of the theater going, what did I just watch? And at the same time say, that was amazing. But again, I'm going to I'm going to hold for for reviews before I could see it. Yeah, jumping onto your point, Aaron, I got the HP Lovercraft kind of vibes from it, especially with the way that the ocean was looking at some of the shots. You know, I was expecting for a big monster to come out of the ocean. I also got some of the Shining vibes, you know, where these guys are just in a lighthouse and they're isolated away from, it looks like, civilization altogether. It looks like they're the only people there, uh, unless we're getting, like, you know, some ghosts and some octopuses or mermaids, which we see during the shots. And also... uh 
I can't wait to see the um, chemistry between William Defoe and Robert Patterson. They look like they really nailed down these accents of the time period of the 1890s, which is um, is stationed in. And also, I uh, like Patrick said, the black and white makes it more intriguing. And also the aspect ratio. I like that Eggers is bringing back the aspect ratio that was used back in the 1930s, 1920s, kind of a way to keep the environment confined. And, you know, kind of like almost claustrophobic in a way, not like widescreeny or anything like that. So it's going to be very interesting to go to an independent cinema and watch this. But I'm, I'm, this is the, the movie, the film that I was most pumped about out of all the trailers. And this trailer actually made me go watch The Witch for the first time. And I actually enjoyed it. I love the way that the story was told. I like the element of surprise. I like the way that it kind of goes bonkers at the end, but also keeps itself like kind of contained and leaves it up to the audience to kind of figure it out. So I'm, de- I'm definitely thinking that's going to be the same way, but I'm hoping for some really crazy bonker stuff because that's what I like in my horror films. But yeah, the lighthouse is, um, my most anticipated for the rest of the year. Wow. That is definitely strong. Well, I'm going to ask you guys a couple questions and we'll leave with this one since you just answered this. If you could only see one of these four movies, which one would you want to see? And it sounds like, Coles, your answer is The Lighthouse, from what yes. you just said. So, Patrick, which is the one that, if you could only see one, you would see? Probably The Lighthouse, just for curiosity's sake. It seems like the one that has the most ambiguity to it, that has a, the most to to give me. Wow, fascinating. Not not what I expected. I wanted to say Queen and Slim. It's pretty pretty close to me, is Queen and Slim. But I'm, I actually have to say 1917, because... I think that while the others all have the ability to wow me and for me to really enjoy them on a unique you know, level, I feel like 1917's floor is really high for me personally. And so I'm much more likely to enjoy it no matter what and also has that potential to be a big blockbuster hit. So I go 1917. The other question I want to say is which one do you predict will be the best? So think like best picture nomination level are any of these films gonna be that good and so which one Coles? i say that the irishman in 1917 have the best chance of being best picture nominees um i know how the academy seems to always like look down on horror films for some reason so i would say the lighthouse but there could be a chance that they just like look over that because it may be too like out there for them well but- more like what do you think is going to be the best film though not don't use the academy as a barometer i'm just saying what do you think is going to be the best film i would have to say lighthouse would be the best film patrick probably 1917 all right i'm gonna say the irishman i think that that's going to end up being the kind of consensus best film out of this group so i guess we will wait and see and find out in four or five months that's all we can do Well, that's all from us on this episode of FF Plus. Coming up in just a few short days, we talk about the Week 2 Director Battle Month winner, the Grand Budapest Hotel. So that should be a lot of fun. Aaron Kales, thanks for the conversation, guys. And we'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. 
I'm very active in both places, and I'd love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. But be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.